Thank you for joining the Startup Guide to Growth. My name is Rika Malazzi, and I'm Senior Director of Go-To-Market Ops at Sapphire Ventures. Today's discussion is with Kyle Coleman, VP of Revenue Growth and Enablement at Clary. Kyle has had an incredible run as an enterprise tech professional. I asked Kyle to join this podcast because of the phenomenal perspectives he shares on LinkedIn around sales, management, and go-to-market strategies. I'm excited to have this conversation where we explore his ideas further. In today's episode, we discuss the opportunities and challenges of executing an annual revenue kickoff during these strange times, the elements of a successful cold sales email, and how to adapt your demand gen activities in a virtual environment. Kyle, I want to uh, thank you for joining us on this podcast. Not only am I excited to kind of jump into some of your experiences to share with the audience, but I'm also personally excited because you're a fellow Rhode Islander. You know, I'm happy to kind of share the stage with you here. It is a pleasure to be here, Rico. And I don't have the accent, so I apologize in advance for anybody who had those expectations. Well, I still get looks and strange kind of comments when I talk. So I, I guess I still have it. I'll make up for it. If it weren't for Family Guy, we would no one would even know. But I'm sure you get the Peter Griffin all the time. Yeah, no, put Rhode Island on the map for sure. Kyle, could you give a little bit of background about yourself, kind of your experiences up to this point? I think one of the interesting things I saw you kind of post on LinkedIn was how your career has been more of a rock climb than kind of a straight ascent. So maybe give us your background to the point today at Clary. Yeah, for sure. So I'll try and keep this brief because I know at the top of the podcast, people will probably skip over it anyway. But just so everybody knows, I started my career in B2B tech in 2012. I was a sixth employee at a company called Looker, scaled the SDR team from just a team of me to a team of about 65 people. The company itself grew from six people to about 800 and then was acquired by Google in the summer of 2019. And from there, I jumped over to Clary to lead both SDR and enablement. And now I lead our growth department at Clary, which is demand generation, SDR and enablement, an interesting sort of synergy of of three related teams that are more powerful when they're all together. So I'm excited about that. Your comment on the rock wall, though, and this is important for any folks who are maybe earlier in their career, or even if you're a manager out there and you have folks that you're trying to develop their career, there's an expectation, I think, a misset expectation that career growth is a ladder that just goes straight up. You land your first job out of college, you're at the same company for 50 years, you get your gold watch, you retire, you're on your way out. It's just not the case. And so the way that I think about career growth is from my own personal experience, but also having worked with 120 some odd SDRs over the years, you have to take sometimes lateral steps or sometimes even a step back to find the right foothold in order to ascend the rock climbing wall. So it's, you know, that metaphor I think holds pretty well, where if you're looking at a rock climbing wall and you step on that first little, you know, inset in the wall, you're not just going to go straight up the wall right from there. You're going to have to kind of look around, see what's best for you, feel it out, try and do a few different routes. Again, like I said, step to the side, step down until you feel like, okay, this is for me. Now I'm ready to really start thinking more about growth from a seniority standpoint and taking on more responsibility and grow that way. And I just think that's a more realistic way to think about career development. Yeah. I mean, I can only relate to myself. I started in a renewable energy company for a small family business and, and you know, now I'm in, you know, technology and venture capital. And I always say it's not linear, but one important thing is if you can keep writing that narrative of your career, it doesn't have to look linear on paper, but as long as you can tell a compelling story about how these experiences connect themselves, I think that's, that's kind of like the critical thing. It's very well said. And I think the guidance that I try and give people is try and find the role that has the experiences that you'll find both challenging and fulfilling. 
And if you can find that and you can think about the, the next role for you or your path in terms of experience that you want and not in terms of title that you want, you're going to be far more fulfilled, far more happy long-term. And it's just going to be, it's going to work out a lot better for you. So that's the succinct way of giving advice, I guess. No, I appreciate it. And when you talked about your role today at Clary, it is pretty unique. And I actually wanted to explore that a little bit deeper. Typically, these kind of functions are either held independent, independently, some report up through marketing, typically like demand gen and others may report up through sales. Sometimes SDRs is, is one or the other. Uh, so can you explain why you know, Clary made the decision and you made the decision to put this under one and you said you're extracting synergies. So what are those synergies? Synergies. The synergies between our team are interesting because we are responsible for both creating and accelerating revenue. So a lot of, you know, more traditional demand generation or SDR, BDR, whatever you want to call them. We happen to call it revenue development because we're a revenue operations company and it sounds cooler. Uh, there are real reasons, but we'll leave it at that. The more traditional sort of approach to demand generation and to SDR is just to fill the funnel. And because we have this enablement arm connected to us, we're not thinking just about filling the funnel. We're also thinking about accelerating that pipeline and turning it into revenue. And so the programs that we create and the initiatives that we run, the strategies we pursue are all about both the creation of and acceleration of revenue, so, or of pipeline, so that it turns into revenue. And so we, we're not, of course, we're still thinking about filling the funnel and leads and meetings still matter, but stage one opportunities matter, stage two opportunities matter. And we design comp plans and goals for our SDR and for our growth marketing team that are not just about creating net new opportunities, but advancing them into different stages. And it's that kind of focus on creation and acceleration that just makes us much more intertwined with the sales team who care about qualified opportunities and qualified pipeline, and at the end of the day, revenue. And so it's that kind of focus that allows us to get further down the funnel and really have a strategic working relationship with our friends across the aisles in, in sales. So if I'm hearing you correctly, by bringing these together, you're actually, in your opinion, improving the quality of the pipeline because there's better alignment between demand gen and SDRs and what's being you know, quantified as a sales qualified lead. No doubt about it. The better alignment. And a lot of that alignment is because the division of labor is a bit more blurred. And that may sound kind of scary for folks like, oh, well, how do we know who does what? And it doesn't, we don't care who gets credit for what. Attribution is important as it relates to understanding where we should allocate demand dollars and things like that. But ultimately, who creates an opportunity, who advances that opportunity, it, it, does, it's, it doesn't really matter because we can never really prove it because everything is so intertwined. Account-based programs are going. Our sales development team is building groundswell with lower level, less senior people. And then our AEs are working the power base. They're working the buying group. They're doing those things. And so all of these things are factors in why opportunities get created and why opportunities advance. And so we know the metrics that matter, which are qualified pipeline and revenue and how we get that if as long as we're hitting our revenue targets, everybody's happy. And we design our comp plans in a blended sort of way for our SDRs, for example, that gives them credit both for creating a net new and for opportunities that they have created advancing down the funnel. And that's an important distinction because it incentivizes them to care. It incentivizes them to be more about quality than quantity or a high quantity of high quality. And we want to make sure that they don't just hand off the baton and then forget that the rest of the race is happening. 
we want that baton handoff to matter for an end goal. And it's things as simple as just comping on down funnel um, results for SDRs and for marketing teams that makes a difference and connects everything. No, that makes sense. When I originally reached out to you for this podcast, uh, you said you were heads down on your sales kickoff. If there was any year where sales kickoffs were probably different than the typical sales kickoff, it was this year due to you know the virtual environment we're in. So do you have any learnings from kind of hosting your first virtual sales kickoff as an enablement leader? And what was the experience like? Well, first, I'm going to play a little semantic game with you, Rico, which is we call it revenue kickoff. And the semantics are what they are, but it's an important distinction because it's not just our sales team who attends our kickoff. In fact, because it was virtual and one of the virtues here of the virtual environment was we could invite everybody. And so what we did, the feedback that we've gotten from the event has been very positive. So you can, if anybody's skeptical of what I'm about to say, like reach out to some of our sales leaders, ask them what their team, what they and their teams thought. Uh, A few principles that really helped us. Day one, was an entire company event. Every single person uh, across the world who works at Clary was invited to come. And it was two hours of really high production quality keynotes from our execs. And the reason that I emphasize the high production quality is because we didn't want it to feel just like a long all hands. We wanted it to feel different. And so we got a production company. They did all the COVID friendly things for the folks they, they filmed on site. They set up remote shoots for our remote execs and they had, you know, the different camera angles and all this stuff. And it was just much more engaging. And the other thing is that we gave the guidance to our execs to say, this is not an all hands meeting. This is not a tactical, what are you working on this month, this quarter? This is visionary. What are we as a company hoping to make happen this year in the next five years, next 10 years? And so it was very, it was an inspirational day one. And it was a nice, really nice introduction to a lot of new folks who started at our company at the beginning of the fiscal year. So that was day one. Days two, three, and four were all not full days, not half days, somewhere in between. It was maybe five or six hours of content. Never, never more than 90 minutes straight of content without a break. There has to be a break. You have to give people time to go take their dogs out and take care of their kids and like do the stuff that you need to do when you're working at home. So that was super important. And we also had high energy, high velocity sort of presentations that had a lot of different speakers. So the longest monologue that any single speaker had was maybe five or eight minutes. And then in between that and the presentations, we had people jumping on stage, getting booted off stage, coming in and out, telling one to three minute sort of stories, win stories basically about their experience at Clary. And then right after those presentations, we had breakout groups and breakout working sessions. And I think something that we did well with these working sessions was we pre-designated groups that were going to work together for the entire kickoff. So all three days, days two, three, and four, the same 10 to 12 people were working together in these groups. And we designated in advance a captain of that group to make sure that the conversation was actually happening and that they could then come back and represent their work when we reconvened and talked about what we talked about at the workshops. So I think a lot of times people set up workshops and they're like, ah, the groups will take care of it themselves and it'll all work itself out. And, you know, if we just randomly assign people into groups, no, no, no you got to be more thoughtful about it than, than that. You have to be thoughtful of who's working with whom and make sure that there's some adult in the room who's going to kind of rein things in, take the notes and then present the, the work back. So long way of saying it was a four day event, two hours the first day about half to three quarter days for the next three days. And then the last closing session we had was a conversation with a couple of our board members, which was awesome. 
just hearing about, it was like being in a, in a board of directors meeting, you know, that's the feedback that we got. So it was our CRO moderating a conversation with two of our board members. And they were just talking about the vision for Clary and the impact that Clary has on their portfolio, on, on the industry, their portfolio companies, whatever it is. And it was really great. So if you can hit on some of those themes, uh, keep it fast paced, provide breaks, provide food, you will be in pretty good shape. I like two things I think you touched on is the diversity and the way the content was served. And then also ownership by doing that captain's kind of group setup. It created ownership on the delivery of content and the outcomes. So I, I really like that. And you mentioned, you know, glass half full, you were able to encompass a lot wider group of the company to participate in this. You think moving forward, it will uh, stay virtual even, even when we hopefully get back to normal sometime soon? So it's interesting. This is a, a difficult conversation with our finance team because <laughs> I know finance loves it. <laughs> yeah. Kickoff last year was twice as expensive as kickoff this year. And we involved more people, but you know, we tried our best Rico to kind of capture manufacture that, that the relationship building that happens at kickoff by having little networking groups and, mm -hmm. you know, coffee talk in the morning and, you know, DJ sets and hangouts in the afternoons and night. And it's just not the same as, you know, sitting around a, a fire outside and just shooting the breeze with people that you meet, you know, once a year, maybe four right. times a year, if you're traveling for QBR. So you just can't replace that face-to-face -face contact. And I feel like as well-received as this event was, it's always with the caveat that's for a virtual event, this went really well. <laughs> Yeah, right. But nobody's nobody is saying we need to do well. Nobody except finance is saying we need to do this <laughs> virtual event from here on out because people still miss that interaction. Well, we'll see. Fingers crossed for next year's uh, revenue kickoff. RKO. Yes. I, yeah, I, RKO. That's right. <laughs> uh, we'll see where it is. Hopefully in person. One of the things I I kind of really appreciate is you put a lot of thoughts out there. I think I've heard people call this putting breadcrumbs out there on your thoughts on SDR strategies that you put out there on LinkedIn. Can you dissect for me what the perfect like elements of an SDR outreach is? And then how do you coach and encourage that behavior? Oh man, how much time do we have? <laughs> give, give me the, um, the cliff note version. Yeah, the Cliff Notes version. So if, if folks are interested, like please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I, I try and share the best work from our team for because they deserve it. They're doing incredible work and they're writing these really impactful emails that are getting responses from executives. So if you want to see examples of a team that's doing it right, I take a lot of pride in the work that our team does. So I share a lot of their work. The elements of a of a really great SDR email, in my opinion, are it needs to be short and sweet, 125 words is the max. Subject lines need to be really short, you know, somewhere between one and three words is a sweet spot. Ideally, if your subject line kind of bleeds into that first, that first line of your email, you're doing something right. The first line of your email is super important because you can see that in the preview before even opening that email. So don't waste time with the hope this note finds you well or crazy. These times are unprecedented. Like cut that nonsense out and just get straight into the personalized bit that shows the recipient that you've actually done some work to research who they are or what they care about. So immediately start using the you and your type language instead of the I and we and our type language. This email should not be about you. It needs to be about them, their challenges. And then once you show them that you know them, then you can get into how your company, your product service, whatever solves those challenges for them. So short subject line, intro that's personalized. And then the thing that I think our team does really well is they'll take the research that they've done and they'll transition into Clary's value prop in a really artful and intentional way. So what I mean by that is 
sometimes you'll see people and actually just got a note like this the other day, where it's like, Hey, you're an avid runner. Have you ever done these trails in Colorado? And I was like, wow, this person actually read my LinkedIn profile. Cool. But then literally to transition to their prop, they said, anyway, here's what we do. And I was like, Oh no, you're so close. If, so if they would have taken the, the running, the, the, just a line about running and just say like, like running a race, our company, blah, 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 and transition that way. So that's what our team does really well is they'll find ways to transition from research to value prop. And that your second question, Rico, was how do we help our team do this better? And there's the, the myth of personalization is that every email needs to be 100% bespoke or unique every single time you send it. And that's just simply not the case. So what we do is we have a Slack channel where every time somebody writes a note that they're proud of, whether it gets a response or not, they share that note. Then what our managers do is they take that transition line and they add it to a little glossary that we have. So we have this glossary now of like a hundred different transition snippets for when you find that somebody likes basketball or lacrosse or is from Nebraska or went to this university or whatever it is. So next time you're doing research, you find out that somebody is a youth basketball coach or whatever. We have an email for that. And so that is the means of scaling personalization. It's a different type of templatization that still requires you to do research but also requires a lot of teamwork and a lot of working together so that everybody understands what options they have at their disposal and understands what's working and what isn't. And the other, sorry, another, I'm almost done. Oh, this uh, is great. I'm taking notes. <laughs> really important thing here for the managers or uh, the, the sales marketing leaders out there. You have to let your team write their own emails. And I know that some people may have a little, be a little apprehensive about that, but it's super important for people to, to sharpen their skill set this way. And you need to trust them to be able to do this work. You need to train them to be able to do this work. You need to hire people to use their brains and not just hire them to hit send or to make dials. Like this skill set is super important. And they know how to do it better than you do because you're not doing it. And so I'm always wary of, of offering my advice because I haven't been an SDR for seven, eight years, whatever it is. The folks that are doing it today, they teach me how to do it today. I don't teach, like I can teach them principles. I can teach them things that I have worked in the past, but they're the ones that are constantly evolving the process in a bottoms up sort of way and ensuring that the work that they do today is related to, but not the same as the work they're doing next month. And they're always the ones that are the change agents and empowering them to be thoughtful and to be the ones that are evolving your process. That's the secret sauce to having an engaged team. I love the, the knowledge base you've created with those email templates um, because personalization is key, but it takes a lot of work. And if there's ways you can sh shortcut that without degrading the value of the email, I think that's brilliant. And that, and that knowledge base sounds like it's a good way of doing that. Yeah. Uh, and, and I love one other, little, one other little secret there for folks out there is standardize your research. So, and what I mean by that is look for the same five or eight things about a person or a company every time you do your research. And if you know that you have really solid five or eight emails written for those things, you're going to be good. You're going to be good to go. Like it doesn't have to be different every time. So when I'm teaching, when I'm training people how to do this well, I say, go to somebody's LinkedIn profile, look at how long they've been in the role, where they went to school what their company's growth is year over year on Sales Navigator, like the, those kind of basic things, because we have emails for all of that and cut your teeth 
on the easy sort of research. And once you get used to doing this, then you can go a little bit further afield and you can check them out on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or Clubhouse or whatever it is and get that kind of more nuanced perspective of who they are as a person. But standardizing your research from the jump and just proving to yourself that this is something that's repeatable and scalable is a really important first step. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, I'm taking notes myself. I think this kind of advice is valuable, whether you're an SDR role or not. I, I often tell groups when I do talk to them that like the written word is one of the most powerful things you can learn as a skill. Yes. And I'm still like, I consider myself a novice, but like writing a powerful email, even though people say email is dead, really can go a long way in getting outcomes that you want or getting the actions or the collaboration that you need. So yeah. this was great advice. The other thing about you know sales development roles is, I mean, it, it is a job that requires resiliency, dedication. You know, you're going to oftentimes maybe not get a response or hear no more than you would like. You know, how do you kind of motivate your team and have them persevere through some of those challenges? I mean, it's, it's incredibly rewarding, the results, but to get there can sometimes be challenging. Yeah, you said it. So first of all, we make sure that people know that failure is not only okay, it's inevitable. It's something of a rite of passage, even for our team. Like if you're not failing, then you're not experimenting enough. You're not trying enough stuff out. And if you're only failing like 98% of the time, you're doing something pretty right. Like a 2% success rate here is pretty damn good. So like setting those expectations and just providing some levity here, like, yes, this is important. Yes, we are running businesses. Yes, we're the top of funnel. We're the engine. And in a lot of ways, we're the heartbeat of the revenue engine, but we're not curing cancer here. Like, you don't have to take yourself super seriously. Be professional. Yes. Don't be super formal. Don't kill yourself over the results that you get. Enjoy it. If you enjoy the process, if you can find ways to enjoy doing research, enjoy writing, enjoy those phone calls. And, and that, and again, if we, we talk about the uh, career path and growth um, type mindset, if you're enjoying those experiences that you're getting in this role and you know that, man, I'm learning a lot about how to communicate, how to write, how to talk on the phone, how to convince people, how to be persuasive, those skill sets, they stick with you forever. And I know I would not do what I do today if not for my SDR experience. And so I try and make sure that all, as many people as possible recognize that they're not just an SDR. I hate it when people say that I'm just an SDR. Or if you're an AE doing outbound prospecting, I'm just outbounding. It's not that big of a deal. No, take it seriously and take pride in this work. It's this foundational fundamental skill set that's going to serve you super well for whatever you do in your career, inside or outside of tech. So giving people that perspective that A, the work they do matters, making sure that every time everything they do is, is contextualized and it's connected either to team, department, or company goals and making sure that they know they're playing the long game to develop a set of skills that is going to stick with them forever. If you can do those things and constantly beat those drums, that's how you keep a team engaged and that's how you keep them motivated. Yeah. I also like the point you made at the beginning there is just expectation setting because oftentimes yeah. they're not set. And then you think what you're doing is drastically outside the norm when it's probably right in the norm. Right. Uh, so, yeah. I've read and listened to a few few of your kind of discussions and thoughts around the, the danger of micromanaging as, as a manager. So can you describe what you mean by, by that? Because, you know, I think we, we all know what micromanaging is, but we all have a different definition of it and how, you know, you've kind of avoided maybe potentially falling into that trap and, and what it's enabled for you. Yeah, of course. So the, my definition of micromanagement 
is, well, a definition, I should say, is trying to manage people in by what worked for you. So if you, and this is a, a trap that a lot of SDR leaders, a lot of sales leaders, marketing leaders fall into because they graduate out of the individual contributor ranks into management. And they think, well, I had success as an AE this way. So every other person is going to have success the same way as me. And that's just... Like, that's crazy. And I know that this is a trap to fall into because I fell into it. I was a pretty darn successful SDR. I did things pretty well. And I tried to impart my process onto a team of six, eight, whatever it was, SDRs at the time, early on in the looker days to do things exactly how I did them. And people just kept banging their head against the wall. I was like, why can't they do this right? Why can't they just say that these words on the phone, these words work? I know they work. They work for me. It's because there's a lot of personality. There's a lot of style. There's a lot of psychology that goes into it. And so you need to provide, I find that to avoid micromanagement, you need to provide a framework for what works. But within that framework, you need to provide a lot of room or allow a lot of room for autonomy so that people can say, I gravitate toward this style or this mode of outreach because I'm better at it. I'm more effective at it. I, fi I find it more fulfilling. I, I have more fun doing it. And I want to be the one who's evolving the way that we do our cold calling or we evolve the way that we do our negotiations or whatever it is. And if people are gravitating toward the things that they find are strengths of theirs, then they're making sure that those strengths make their way across the rest of the team and the process as a whole evolves. So to avoid micromanagement, really understand what everybody's strengths and weaknesses are on your team. And I use the word team very intentionally because I think it gets overused. And what I mean by that is most teams are not teams. They're groups of individuals. And there's an important distinction. A team is a group of people who understand what they're all good at, what they're all weak at, and who to go to when they need help with something versus a group of individuals are just a group of people that happen to work together. And if your team is actually a team, then they'll solicit feedback. They'll ask for help. They'll, they'll be willing to help others. They'll mentor each other. And that's the kind of thing that that rising tide that ensures that A, everybody's more engaged and B, your team finds more success. So if you can do those things and you as a leader, as a manager are more focused on unlocking people's strengths and allowing them to be vulnerable about their weaknesses, that's way more effective than you trying to browbeat them about how many calls they need to make every day or trying to make sure they're doing something exactly the same way that you did something. So those are my general thoughts. I like that hiring with the intent of improving the team rather than just looking at that kind of job spec in a silo. That's really interesting. I think, you know, like you said, we oftentimes think, well, this is the way I did it and it worked so well. So this is what everyone needs to do. And that can also bleed over into hiring as well, right? You, you know, you start looking for people who can emulate the characteristics that you used previously. So definitely can resonate there. I wanted to shift the conversation over to one of your focuses, demand generation that we talked about earlier. I think demand generation has significantly changed over the last 12 to 18 months as well, as a result of some of the kind of macro impacts and healthcare impacts that we've seen. How has this kind of changed your demand gen strategy? You know, what do you see working in today's environment? And, and you know, how, how are you evolving that strategy as a result of things like events just no longer being a demand gen activity? I mean, there's virtual events, but from what I've heard anecdotally is they're a little bit tougher to get to extract the same value from them. Yeah, it's would have thought that a plague would affect in-person events. It's crazy. <laughs> we used to lean pretty heavily on in-person events too, because we you know, we sell to salespeople and 
uh, sales folks like the, the interaction and getting together, you know, for happy hours and, and drinks and just, you know, talking chop with, with people that are doing something similar, you know, going through the same trials and tribulations that they are. So that was, that was a big strategy of ours was those regional sort of meetups. Um, so those have fallen by the wayside, obviously. And then things like Dreamforce and, and, you know, those types of trade shows were always big for us as well. So we've had to forego that. But fortunately, Rico, we haven't had to change our philosophy too much because our philosophy, even before the COVID era, was really all account-based. And I, I mentioned already that kind of integration that we have across sales and marketing and, and being really hyper-focused on the same set of high-value accounts or high-priority accounts. And so all the work that we're doing now and the energy that we do from a demand gen perspective is all about penetrating the right accounts. We need to be really intentional about which accounts we're reaching out to or which groups of accounts we're reaching out to, because not all of our efforts are one-to-one. -one. They can't all be. But we do a lot of one-to-few type things to uh, key industries. We do the one-to-many type things to key personas that are all within the same universe of the right accounts. And we have shifted. Uh, we've taken that kind of secret sauce of the in-person events, and we shifted that to a virtual sort of roundtable strategy where we do webinars, we do the larger, you know, hundreds of people are coming to these things type type events, but our more successful events are the smaller scale ones, the ones that only have like six people, eight people there, and everybody's actually talking to each other. It's a, it's a, it's like being around a table, except you're virtual. And a lot of demand gen marketers would look at that and they would go eight people at an event. No, thank you. That's a waste of my time. Yeah, exactly. Like I have to do all the landing page and I have to do the event coordination, I have to do the emails, I have to do the invites and all that stuff. It's like, yeah, you do. And it's worth it to do it because if you get the right eight people in a room, we had an event in EMEA last year in London, our London team, six people came, four of them are customers. So like, it's that type of thing that if you're really intentional about who you're reaching out to, you're really confident that the message that you have is going to be useful for them, or even just the message they have for each other is going to be useful to one another, then get them together. And that kind of human to human interaction, even though it's via video is still very valuable. And so shift your mindset away from the more traditional success criteria for demand generation leads, meetings, volume, 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 and more toward what actually matters now to your sales team, which is the right people at the right time and the right accounts. You can do that. You're onto something good, and I'm sure finance loves that as well because it's much cheaper than sponsoring Dreamforce or a big event like that. It is. It is. It does add up when you start to do the more. There are more kind of inter intricate sort of account based things that you can do that can get a little pricey. But yeah, for the most part, not having to spend however many thousands of dollars on on a Dreamforce booth is a nice thing. <laughs> for sure, I want to touch upon the last kind of, I guess vector of your oversight, which is sales enablement. Mm. There's tons of methodologies. I know we touched upon it about coaching around SDRs, but I imagine enablement is enabling the whole revenue function. What do you find is most successful for programs generally to kind of, you know, oftentimes sales executives kind of view enablement programs as sometimes more of a nuisance than a productive manner for them. So how, how do you overcome that? It's a difficult thing to overcome. The pain is real. We're very intentional about uh, a couple things. First and foremost, the enablement programs that we do always have to be revenue impacting in some way. And we always think of them as revenue impacting, but we need the field to think of them as revenue impacting. So every time we do an enablement session, we lead with, this is why this matters to you. This is how it's going to help you close more business or whatever. Here is how this 
training or this mindset, this philosophy, whatever, this is how it's going to help you. So we always start with that. We're always, we design around that main sort of thesis that what sort we of, do. Yeah. Like your email blueprint, you start with the you. Exactly. Exactly. Um, because that's what people care about. You know, they don't want to come to a competitive training that's super remedial and they just learn the things they already know about a competitor and they feel like it's a waste of time. We need to say this competitor just came out with this new feature and you need to be able to respond to it and show this feature so that you're moving your deals through the funnel. So we're always very intentional about the framing of those things. Secondarily, we never ever want our in-person trainings to be remedial. Never. And we're intentional about a structure that's been really useful for us. And th th this was true for our kickoff that we did as well, where we take care of the vocab type work, you know, the, the definitions, the, the basic sort of stuff. We take care of all of that in, in mandatory pre-work. So completing the pre-work for kickoff, for example, was your ticket to come to kickoff. So you had to go do that. Pre and a lot of our kickoff was around things like understanding what a private equity company cares about because we sell to a lot of private equity companies. And so we didn't want to go and have a live presentation where we were reading a definition off of investopedia.com about private equity. Like people would have just not been happy. So we, we take care of all the foundational stuff in pre-work. We say, go learn about these concepts. Here's some supporting articles, podcasts, videos, take as much time as you need to really have a baseline understanding of what we're talking about so that when we're in the live session and telling stories about how we've sold to PE-backed companies, you get it. It makes sense yeah. to you. It's contextualized. And so the live sessions, therefore, almost always, as I mentioned before, in the way we did our kickoff, high energy, fast, never more than 45 minutes, if you can make it that short, and about 30 minutes of presentation content, 15 minutes of Q&A, and always narrative-based, always story-based. The less you can make it about just, you know, reading off of a slide about messaging, positioning, whatever it is, the better. You want real people coming in and telling stories of how they've done this in the past or how this has affected them in the past or their experience with this concept in the past. So if you can focus on that, you're in really good shape. And then the third component is post-work. So pre-work, understand the concepts, live session pressure test those concepts with folks who have done it before and post-work apply what you learned to your book of business. Tell us about how you're going to use this principle in an active deal that you have. Mm -hmm. And if you can do those three things, then from an instructional design standpoint, you've, you're really hammering the concept home and you're ensuring that people find value in all the different segments there and that there's accountability baked in at the beginning and at the end so that the managers can actually know like who's taking this seriously, who's completing the work, who do we need to be worried about, who needs to spend more time on this concept. It's just, just a much more comprehensive way of thinking about things. Instead of what I've seen a lot of enablement folks do is, all right, it's Tuesday morning, our enablement session's at eight o'clock, we gotta tell them something. And then they just come in and they just like kind of kill 80 or 90 minutes and everybody walks away like, what the heck did we just do in there? So be more intentional. I think I mentioned the phrase before, but if you can think about or, or learn about instructional design type concepts, you're going to have a much better understanding of how people learn and how people don't learn. And then you can apply those to your enablement processes. Do you have a competitive market team under you that helps kind of fill the pipeline on what you're going to enable over the next six months or so? Uh, not until you give us another round of investment, Rico. <laughs> 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 right. We've got uh, dedicated folks on our product marketing team who are sort of our subject matter experts for different competitors. And then we have a couple of sales engineers who are also our SMEs 
for uh, various sets of competitors. Okay. And what our enablement team is, is meant to do is to kind of herd the cats and corral and tease out the best insights from those folks and okay. then uh, apply that, that pre, during, post-work framework to what the work that's presented to them. Oh, that's great. I want to touch on one last topic uh, as it revolves around you know, talent management. Um, can you talk about you know, how you evaluate great talent when you're hiring? Yeah, I just flip a coin. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I mean, if you th- read thinking fast and slow, <laughs> you know, you might have better odds for something. Yeah, yeah, you may be right. Um, so I am, I built a, we built, was not just me, an SDR team in Santa Cruz, California. And for the uninitiated, Santa Cruz, California is technically in the Bay Area, but it is not the same as being in Mountain View, Palo Alto, San Francisco. Let's be generous and say it's just, it's a little more hippie, a little more laid back. And so building a sales team there was a challenge because we, well, I thought it was going to be a challenge because you didn't have the traditional sales talent. So I was raised, you know, in, in SaaS tech, thinking differently about what talent is and, and isn't and came to a few conclusions. One is a team of people that have varied experiences is super valuable, super valuable. And they don't literally have to have sales experience. That's a silly thing to require an entry-level salesperson to have. If what they need to have is an ability to talk about their past experience and relate it to what, how, and why it'll make them successful in a sales role. And so if you're, you look for people like that, and as a result, we had people that were philosophy majors and English majors and used car salesmen and radio producers and like, you name it, that we came and we saw and we we're like, yes, you're the type of person who is, it will work well with the team, who is not afraid to fail, who is helpful to others, who's willing to ask for help, who's coachable who's willing to change their mind, who's able to change other people's minds. So if you're looking for that type and, and, and in the course of your interview, you're assessing for that type of mindset, you're going to be in much better shape. And, and to put just a final exclamation point on this, a lot of interviewers will ask their interviewee to pitch my product. So somebody's coming in to interview a Clary and they say, sell me Clary, tell me, give me the elevator pitch. And I've interviewed thousands of people. And I used to ask this question. And every time I asked this question, I was like, why the heck did I just ask that? They just basically read what's on clary.com. And what did I expect? Did I expect them to know the product better than me or to impress me with their, like, what, what am I trying to do here? So I no longer ask that question. I find it completely useless. Instead, I ask people to, about a passion of theirs, inside of work, outside of work, whatever. What's a passion of yours? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What's exciting to you? Tell me about it. Pitch me on it. Convince me it matters. And if they can convince me that their passion is cool is, and it matters and it's impactful and they have the energy and I can see the fire in their eyes and then I know that they have what it takes to sell my product. I just have to get them excited about my product. So the folks who do that well and can sell me on them are the ones that we hire. And, and that's, you know, it's no secret it just takes more time and it takes more energy to vet people that way. I'm curious how many, many people in your SDR team for Looker also surfed? All? <laughs> yeah. 100, 100%? Yeah. Somebody rolls in the office at 10. We had showers in the office. Uh, so people would come in, you know, with their, their wetsuit kind of half down, just walk right into the shower and then come right out to the, to the pod. It's like, wow, that's, that's the dream. That's great. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> at the end of the interview, I like to ask a question totally irrelevant to anything business at hand. So as I mentioned at the beginning, 
both from Rhode Island, the small but mighty state of Rhode Island. So if someone was going to visit this state, which I highly recommend they do for 24 hours, what are the things you're telling them that they should do? Oh boy. 24 hours. So it's got to be in the summer. If you're not going in the summer, you're doing something very wrong. And the summer is a tight window. It's what, June through August. (laughs) So yeah, it's like falls are nice too. Springs are nice too, but it's cold. So don't get tricked. Go in the summer. And I say go in the summer because my answer is two words, Dell's lemonade. Do you know Dell's lemonade, Rico? Of course. Of course. (laughs) Is this little truck that has it just knows Dell's lemonade. I definitely <laughs> yeah. It's this little truck that pulls up to the beaches. This Dell's lemonade truck, a tycoon now, a business tycoon, this Dell, and they pull up to the beaches. It's basically just lemon sugar water, but there's also just like sometimes lemon peels in the cup. And you're like, this is kind of gross, but kind of awesome. I don't know why I like this so much, but nothing better on a hot day. And as a teenager with a little vodka in there, you can't go wrong. <laughs> good. That's a good call. I highly recommend Dell's Lemonade as well. Kyle, I want to uh, thank you for bestowing your knowledge, not only on enterprise technology sales, but also Rhode Island fun facts. And hopefully maybe we could do it again in the future. It'd be a pleasure. Thanks so much, Rico. Thanks, Kyle.